And it's Jamison Fink with another episode of Wine Without Worry. Wine Without Worry is brought to you by Wente Vineyards, America's oldest family-owned winery and California's first family of Chardonnay. You can visit them online at wentevineyards.com. And today I want to talk about another, um, well, I, I guess I'm pretty much living in Seattle. I focus a lot on the West Coast. We talk a lot about California, Oregon, Washington. I write about uh, those three states quite a bit on my blog at jamesonfink.com. But today I'd like to pay attention to the East Coast, which is a part of the United States as far as wine goes, that uh, is more and more exciting and, and getting more and more on my radar. And one region I'm especially curious about, just because of the, the style of the wines that I see coming out there, is the Finger Lakes, which are located in New York, and they're doing a lot of really fascinating and interesting things there. And there's actually quite a bit of history, maybe longer than you, or frankly, even I would think. So that's why I'm really excited to have as my guest today, Chris Mathewson. He's the winemaker at Bellwether Wine Cellars in the Finger Lakes. And Chris, uh, thanks for being on the show. I guess my first question is, uh, you know, I'll plead a little bit of ignorance, although I probably could point it out on a map. Um, where are the Finger Lakes in New York? Um, the Finger Lakes are in central New York. So um, it takes up about over 10,000 acres of vineyard, but um, there's, 11 finger, there's 11 lakes that are kind of narrow that go across central New York. So what makes this region so hospitable for uh, wine grapes? Why are, why are you and other people finding success there? The Finger Lakes have really deep lakes. Um, we also have a really cool climate with a really nice diurnal um, temperature, so it'll be really cool in the nights and really warm in the day. And um, we have really deep lakes that'll kind of fluctuate. They'll help like maintain the temperature as well. Um, throughout the whole growing season from like the winter uh, to the summer and everything. We also have a really diverse um, soil sample throughout the region as well. And, and in that soil, I guess sort of the, uh, the calling card wine would be uh, Riesling. I think that's what Finger Lakes are, are best known for. Um, talk to me about the, the, the Riesling there, what makes it unique and, and distinct and successful. The, the Riesling does really well because of those diurnals that I talked about earlier. So when we have those really cool nights and those really warm days in the Finger Lakes um, with like a kind of a medium range growing season, we were able to kind of get the, the acid that we really focus on in the Finger Lakes maintained. So the way that a grape develops, and a Riesling in particular, at night when it's cool, um, that helps protect and maintain and keep some of the acidity that's there. And then during the day, we're able to ripen with the, the temperature increasing and more sunshine. And so we're able to get, you know, a nice balance between acid and, and flavors and ripeness and everything. So the Finger Lakes has really been pushing, getting these really, like, acidic, um, well-balanced Rieslings that we've been producing. And it's really been successful, and it's different than a lot of other um, viticulture areas in the United States and in Europe as well. Yeah, and it's interesting that you grew up there. I mean, what was your first experience with um, the wines of the Finger Lakes? And were you, did it sort of, was it the, the wine of where you grew up that kind of got you into winemaking, or was it a, a different journey? I had like no direction as a young adult, basically. So, like, right when I got out of high school and I was going into college, you have like three choices living on the lakes, which is like a tourist destination basically you can either um, work as a lifeguard on the lake 
you can work at a restaurant as a waiter or a cook on the lake, or you can get a job in a tasting room or or work in a wine cellar, basically. And because I wanted to, like, go to college and be able to, like, talk with my professors about the the wines, which my family had, like, no experience with. Like, everybody drank beer, basically, mm. or, or whiskey or whatever. Um, I wanted to be able to talk about it, so I went and I got a job at a local winery, actually, about, um, Bully Hill, which is one of the older wineries uh, in the Finger Lakes. And um, after a couple days, I was working in the tasting room. I think I worked in the tasting room for, like, three days, and the the winemaker asked me if I could help him move some barrels that day. And um, that led to me working, you know, every moment I was away from college, uh, working in the winery and then helping doing other things, um, like doing sales stuff outside when I was at college as well. So, so that's, so that's, uh, if people are interested in getting into winemaking, someone someday, someone might ask you just to move a couple barrels around and then the next thing you know, um, you're on the path to making wine, right? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) And then it just kind of took over. I mean, I'm 32, and this is my um, – I've been doing it for 11 – over 11 years now. So um, <laughs> it kind of became something that, like, became a part of my life, and it's it's really cool because it's, like, a part of where I grew up, and, like, it, you know, it's really, like, ingrained in people from this area that, like, winemaking and, and viticulture is something that you can do and – and be happy and and make a good living and you know have an honest job basically yeah and i think what's interesting is i guess a lot of um you know certainly here in washington there are plenty of uh you know people who grow up in eastern washington and maybe you know work in the wine industry there but then there are a lot of people who let's say they their dream is to you know make wine in napa or make wine you know like far away from where they grew up um how is it how is it special for you to you know make wine in the the very area that you grew up in do you really is it uh, does it make it that much more special important or do you feel added pressure since you're like a hometown boy to you know do a really good job um you know i think that i kind i do a little bit i feel like it's kind of our responsibility or it's something that i'm really lucky that i feel that the people have given me the opportunity to get to a point where i get to make the style of wines that I want to make and, and kind of go out to the world and show the world what we're doing in the Finger Lakes. And I'm really lucky. There's there's very few winemakers currently in the Finger Lakes who grew up in the Finger Lakes. A lot of them are um, coming in from other regions and, you know, beginning to work here. There was a trend for a while to bring in winemakers from, like, France or Germany and mm-hmm. all those guys have come before me and stayed and taught the winemakers who are here currently um, substantial amounts of, um, you know, tradition and, and, and education. And those guys have really made it easy for people like myself to, to, to go beyond, to take what they've taught us and to, to be local. But currently there's like maybe... T- there's over 100 wineries in the Finger Lakes, and there's probably only um, 15 local winemakers. Hmm, interesting. Um, and you mentioned the style of, you know, getting to make the style of wines you want to make. So um, a while back, you sent me a, a few uh, sample bottles to check out from Bellwether Wine Cellars, and um, I had the chance to drink a couple of them um, 
uh, with my friend Madeline Puckett from Wine Folly. Um, and if you're not familiar with that, that's at winefolly.com to tape my last podcast episode. And we had the uh, 2012 Sawmill Creek Riesling and then the 2013 um, Dry Rosé of Pinot Noir. And one of the first things I noticed about them um, before I even opened them is they come in these um, really like slender and, and elegant bottles. And I'm always curious about, you know, as someone who sold wine for a long time, packaging and marketing, was there sort of a, I mean, I don't know if those are, are those traditional Riesling bottles? They seem even more slender, but uh, I'm just curious about, you know, choosing like bottles and things like that. Is that something you, you know, think about a lot from a marketing perspective or just kind of, you know, you do what you like there? So I actually studied... Um psychology in college. Oh, and, interesting. And my my main, I, I finished my degree a little early, and then I did two years' work of independent study in research. And what I was focusing on, on was the effects of suggestion on the perceived taste of alcohol. Hmm. Um, and I was doing, on the perceived taste of, of wine, actually. So um, I had a really big focus on packaging and how that how consumers perceive packaging to quality and what they perceive the wines as after, based on the packaging, basically. So it was really important to me to, to have a package that demonstrated the ideas of what we were trying to do. So um, like my label, it took me over two years to design. Um, and then the bottles themselves, those are, we use traditional hock bottles, which hock is um, a German word meaning high. And mm-hmm. um, those are traditional bottles or flutes, like you would, you, some people would call them. And, and um, what I use is I actually direct import my own bottles for my standard Rieslings, um, and those are an Austrian-style bottle. So mm-hmm. it's one of the things that I was re- I've been really fascinated with throughout my like whole study of wine and and uh, packaging and everything is is how bottles. Um, like the historical impact and, and the importance of bottles for different regions. And like traditionally bottles were produced in certain regions and that's why those wines or or alcohol or other alcohols, whether it be like schnapps or beers, had different bottle types. So um, different regions in Germany um, or Austria or France had bottle types that were very specific to those regions. So when I picked the bottle that I wanted to use, I view the Finger Lakes personally as more like Austria than Germany. So I wanted to use Austrian-style bottles, which those bottles are um, from Austria, and then I had to import them through a company in Quebec and then to the United States, basically. Well, your uh, your psychology of bottle choice certainly worked on me, but of course, um, it also matters um, what's inside the bottle. And a couple things I noted. Uh, well, first of all, the the Riesling and the Pinot Noir. I was in a pretty much a dream environment. I was sitting outside on a picnic table in a sunny uh, Seattle day. It was really a lovely day. And and the first thing I noticed about the Riesling is that um, I still think there's this. Um, uh, stigma of Riesling as, as being sweet, and, and certainly there's um, there's some sweetness in your Riesling, but it's so uh, light and lively that I think there are a lot of, I could probably have some sort of a generic, you know, Chardonnay that might taste sweeter than um, this Riesling. Can you talk about the style of Riesling you make and why I'm um, not sensing so much sweetness there, even though there is some uh, sugar present? Yeah, um, the style that that Riesling in particular, that's from a vineyard site um, on Seneca Lake, and I find the Riesling that's planted on Seneca Lake to produce a lot of like um, 
fruity um, stone fruit aromas. And so for me, I want to make those wines that are kind of in a, a Mosel style mold. So they, they have all that like um, liveliness that you expect with like lower alcohol German Rieslings. So when I, when I, when I work with that site, I, I try to make a wine that's, that has sugar to it, but it also has acid to balance that back. So when I'm doing my pickings, I pick it like a level kind of close, somewhere between like Cabernet and Spot Laser. So I'm trying to get it so that you have that acidity there, but you also have some sugar there to balance. So with that, when I take the wine through fermentation, um, I let the fermentation go extremely long. So with the wine, that wine, that Sawmill Creek, that was um, that was over a six-month fermentation. And then when I felt it was balanced between the acid and the sugar, then I stopped the fermentation and bottled it like almost immediately so that you had some of the, the CO2, a little bit of the CO2 that was still there from the fermentation, um, giving the, the wine a little bit more life. But you also had that really beautiful balance between acid and sugar as well. Excellent. Yeah, it was a really enjoyable wine. And you're listening to Wine Without Worry with Jameson Fink. My guest is Chris Mathewson of Bellwether Wine Cellars in the Finger Lakes, where he's the winemaker. Uh, to learn more about the winery, go to bellwetherwinecellars.com and be sure and keep up with my adventures in Finger Lakes Wine and Beyond at jamesonfink.com. And coming up, I'm going to ask Chris about uh, rosé, Pinot Noir, and sealing wine with bottle caps. Chris, let's move on to the rosé. That was the second wine I had, and it's a rosé of Pinot Noir. And once again, I think it was really, um, for even for a rosé, not that rosés are low in alcohol, but it was really uh, 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 a pale, very light, very delicate and elegant uh, wine. Um, uh, you know, I've seen Pinot Noir rosés of all kinds of colors and shades and, and depths and, and richness. Um, uh, what what drove you to make that Pinot Noir and that really kind of delicate, elegant style? That's kind of the style of wines that I I personally love. So I love wines with acidity and lower alcohol and that don't like, they're not like hammers that knock you over the head. You know, you have to kind of put your nose in there and really think, but that also makes the wine extremely easy to drink as well. Um and for the rosé that we did, I, I wanted to make a wine that, you know, kind of showed that it was it was Pinot Noir. It had, like, a lot of precursors that you'd expect with Pinot Noir from the um, from the types of aromas that you were getting and the, um, the palate that you were getting as well. Um, we actually um, do all the viticulture. We work with the, the – this is from Sawmill Creek as well, and we work – really closely with Sawmill Creek um, with our viticulture. We actually have a 22-year lease on the um, acre that we produce this Pinot Noir off of. And the Pinot, we actually did this specifically for rosé. So we did our canopy management and our, our yields and our, um, our balancing of our vines like with, with the idea that we were going to make rosé off of this block. Um, but then we like we we tend I tend to want to hand harvest every everything that we do and currently we have hand harvested all of our grapes so we go through and hand harvest and then bring everything back to the winery and sort it so we're only getting the the best quality of Pinot Noir um, that we can from the Finger Lakes 
And then we do a really short skin contact, and that's why you have that lighter color because right. it's not spending so much time on the skins, and it's not picking up a lot of the um, the color that the, the skins are giving off. Um, then we do we basically do nine hours, and then it's a pretty traditionally made um, Pinot Noir. I mean, a rosé at that point, so it has that nine hours of skin contact, and then it's pressed, and then it ferments for about two months. And I allow it to go through malolactic fermentation because I want it to balance out a little bit of that um, that acid that we're so well known for. And then, you know, just kind of focus on getting it so that the wine is really demonstrates that it's Pinot, but it has that nice balance of texture from the short period of skin contact and a really light color, but still really easy to drink as well. Yeah, it certainly was easy to drink. And um, just kind of looking at uh, the the wines you make, it's it's just Pinot Noir and Riesling. Um, why just Pinot Noir and Riesling and not uh, other grapes? Riesling was like kind of my like mother's milk as far as uh, the, what I was trained and raised, and that was the first the first wine I ever drank was a Riesling, and and it's something that like holds really close to my heart. So. We really we I focus primarily on Riesling, so we do almost ninety percent of our oh, okay. Riesling. Um, this year we're going to do actually, I have ten different uh, bottlings of Riesling that we'll be doing, um, and we're a pretty small winery. We're only um, twelve hundred cases currently, so ten Rieslings across that is kind of like insane, and they're all different pickings and. Yeah, you're uh, a glutton for punishment. Yeah, I, I put on as much work onto myself as possible. <laughs> But um, but so that was really, you know, a no-brainer. Riesling is what we're known for in the Finger Lakes. It's something that I, I, I truly love, and it's something that I believe the Finger Lakes does really well. I think there's the uniqueness of our wines and the quality of what we do in the Finger Lakes is, is completely different than, than any other growing region in the world, whether it be Germany or um, Alsace or Austria or Australia or New Zealand, or Washington. I think what we do is very specific and really cool. But then Pinot, this, it's another thing. It was kind of, that's where I'm really a glutton for punishment, actually. Pinot Noir is, um, it's pretty it's pretty difficult currently to grow here. So there's so much work and stress and um, kind of, you have to keep your eye on the ball very closely. Like the past two years, um, that I've picked, we, I've handpicked all my Pinot and done all the um, vineyard work. Um, all the, not the, I do, I work with the team to do the pruning, but then I do all the, um, the field sorting and uh, canopy management. You do but, it all by um, yourself? I do most of that um, by myself. Actually, I usually have like one or two other people um, working with me, so I will do all that by myself, and then. Um, I'll have someone come in, like, and assist me, like someone that's work that works in our tasting room. I'll be like, hey, can you show up at the at the site, and we're gonna work like three hours. And and I you, this happens. I was the assistant winemaker in another winery, and this was happening before I went to work and after I went to work. So I would work at least eight hours at the winery, and then before I went to work, I would be up at like 5:30. Um, and I would go to the vineyard and do all the the fruit management basically by by myself or with one other person. Jeez, you're making um, me feel lazy. 
Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. <laughs> um, it was I usually I lose about during harvest I lose um, somewhere between fifteen and twenty pounds. Actually. Wow! Holy cow! Yeah. So I kind of um, go go all out, and when we harvest our Pinot Noir, I actually I sleep at the winery to do all my cold soaks. So I use like ambient temperature. So I like move my bins outside at night, and then I I sleep. I sleep about 200 feet away from the bins, and then I go. I wake up all night and check the temperature, and then once the the temperature meets meets the bins, then I move the bins back inside, and that's usually at like 4:30 or between 4:30 and 5 in the morning, and then go back to the vineyard basically. Um, and my wife hates it. So <laughs> yeah, it's like it sounds to me like it's almost like you're the parent of a young infant who who gets up at all times of the night to tend to um, whatever thing may 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 come up. So I, I applaud your your effort, and I think it certainly shows in the wines. And I wanted to ask you about two other wines that you sent me. They're in my fridge right now. Both of them are filled with a bottle cap. Um, can you just tell me what those two wines are? Um, yeah. So one of the wines is. Um, from another vineyard on Cuca Lake called A&D Vineyard. And that is a wine that I, I made called um, Wild Ferments, or Riesling Wild Ferment from A&D Vineyards, basically. And then the second wine is a um, Petalant Natural, or Petnat, um, of Riesling as well from another vineyard site, which was made this year. So what? Um, why are they uh, sealed with a... I mean, are they both uh, fizzy, sparkling, frizzante, or what's... Uh, What's 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 in there? What's going on in there? Yeah, those are those are kind of um, those are really like fun wines and wines that I kind of like was like, all right, we're gonna try this and see what happens basically, and I'm really happy with the results. But so Bellwether um, is owned by my in-laws, and okay. my in-law, my father-in-law, is one of like the pioneers of hard cider production in I I I would say the United States, but definitely within the Finger Lakes. And so we've had a cidery for 15 years. Um, so we've produced hard cider for 15 years. And the hard cider we have, with the hard cider, we have a bottling line that puts, that puts a pressurized product um, into, into, into the bottle and then puts a crown cap on it. And the, the bottling line we have actually has, like, a serial number of one, which is, like, I think really cool. So yeah. On the on the bottling line, it has that. So I had this crown cap availability to me. Um, so I wanted, to, I kind of want to like use all the things around me um, to produce like different styles of wines or different ideas. So um, the first one, the wild ferment, that was a wine that I've never been allowed to make a wine like that at other wineries I've made. And it was something I've always wanted to try. So it's it's kind of like going toward that natural side of wine, basically. And with that wine, it's uninoculated, so it has no commercial yeast added to it. Um, there was no sulfur added at the press pan, which is really common practice. Um, there's no fining or filtering, which is another really common practice. So the wine just kind of like fermented, and I kind of like guided it to the bottle, is what I like to say. And... Um, we use really low, very low levels of CO2 in that. I believe that that vintage we used um, 20 parts per million totals, which is a very low amount of sulfur. Um, it actually would make it um, it would make it so it sits it's 
it fits into the Demeter category of um, biodynamic allowed sulfur. So right. like the most like stringent level of how much sulfur you could use in a wine. And um, so we bottled the wine with, instead of using CO2 to help preserve the wine, I wanted to use the CO2 that was produced from the fermentation to help preserve it from like oxidation and other other things that could spoil the wine. So we put a crown cap on it to kind of preserve the wine with the CO2 that's produced during the fermentation. That particular wine doesn't have very much of a, a spritz to it. It kind of it it's there and it helps build some texture and body mm. to the wine, but most consumers aren't going to be like, hey, this is a sparkling wine or anything like that. Yeah. Well, Chris, um, I've, I've heard enough about this wine. There's a bottle about 15 feet away from me, and yeah. it's wine o'clock right now, so I'm going to run to my fridge, uh, open it, and pour myself a little bit because um, I just uh, I can't stand it anymore. I really need a sip. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to be back in 10 seconds, and I'm going to open up this wine because I'm really excited to try it while I'm talking to you. So give me just a second. Okay, so I've got a bottle of 2012 A&D Vineyard Wild Ferment Riesling, and oh, you're right, it doesn't seem very fizzy at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even when you open it, it doesn't have like, it doesn't have that kind of like spritz you get when you open any, even like a frizzante wine. That's really, um, mm, it's really light and refreshing. It actually reminds me of like cider in some ways. Yeah, um, that was one of the things I, I was really interested, I, I found really interesting was, was there was kind of those apple cidery aromas that you got, not as much like as it was oxidized or anything like that, but more so that you had like some apple and that little bit of spritz there as well. Yeah, it's kind of like a cider meets Riesling. It's got, um, uh, it's really refreshing and it's very light. It would be a great, um, it's like 70 degrees and sunny in Seattle. Um, it would be, I I wish I could transport myself outside because this would be a really nice thing to drink for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's very nice. Very nice. Yeah, thank you. Um, that was, um, just a cool little project wine that we did and, um, I was really happy with it. So we actually, um, made quite a bit more. We actually did, um, last year I think we did like 40 some cases, somewhere between 40 and 50 cases. I don't remember. I'm not like, you know, every winemaker like is on the current vintage in their minds basically. And right. Kind of moves past their, their last. But um, this year we do, I'm doing, I actually bottled it a while ago and I did for 2013, I did 120 cases of that, which I'm really happy with. Um, from the same site, same technique, kind of showing um, how the site presents itself throughout the vintage as well with that same fermentation technique. Yeah, it's uh, it's really a, a fascinating wine, and um, I think it's emblematic of uh, what you're doing is what, what is happening in the Finger Lakes. So, uh, Chris, I really want to thank you for being on the show. Um, the Finger Lakes is a, a wine region that I, frankly, like I said in the beginning, don't know that much about, so it's great to talk to you. It's a really exciting region. Uh, there's more than just Riesling and Pinot Noir there, too. People are kind of experimenting with, with all kinds of things. So, um if you're a West Coast wine person like myself, uh, I encourage you to uh, uh, check out what's going on on the other coast uh, in New York, especially in the Finger Lakes, because there's some really exciting things going on, especially if you like um, 
you know, elegant, uh, lively wines, like the kind that you're producing. So thank you very much for being on the show, Chris. And everyone, please go to bellwetherwinecellars.com, and uh, you can see what, what Chris is up to. Thanks for being on the show, Chris. Oh, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's-